Julie, if a stranger walked up to you, what would you rather talk to them about, your finances or your sex life? Oh, geez. I don't know. That's a hard one, Jeremy. <laughs> I don't know. Probably my sex life because I'm so, I don't know. I feel um, disempowered when I talk about financial information. So I don't know. That's a really, that's a hard one. Neither? Neither. Yeah. No. Well, it's funny you you have that response because actually I did read at one point that we are much more inclined to talk to people about our sex than our finances. Nobody wants to talk about finances with anybody. But it, the reason I ask you the question is, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about sexual health today. And I feel that it seems pretty difficult for us to talk about sex, even if we're in a doctor's office or with somebody who even specializes with sexual health. We've walked in for a sexual health appointment and it's still like, I feel uncomfortable and don't want to talk about this. Why do you think it's so hard for us to talk about sex? I think there's a lot of answers and I'm hoping that those answers change throughout the generations potentially. Um, I think sometimes there's stigmatization of sex or talking about sex or special, especially like women owning their own sexuality, which I think we're going to like you know, ease into during this episode, hopefully. But yeah, I mean, I think sometimes there's different dogmatic teachings that we get growing up about sexuality. And um, I don't know, I just think it's, or maybe there wasn't any talk about it at all as you were growing up. And maybe you went to Catholic school and your health class was by like Mrs. Tolzien and they <laughs> divided the boys and the girls into different rooms and girls learned about periods and boys learned about, I don't know, from Mr. Pavisa. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of mystery is what I'm trying to say, potentially. That was a very specific example. Thank you for that. (laughs) You asked me personally, Jeremy. You're going to get a very, very specific answer. Yeah, it's I think ultimately speaking, we have been, you know, sex stays private and that's how it's always been. And so there's analogs to this. Mental health has to stay private. So don't tell anybody about your mental health issues. So just, you know, keep that inside. So sexual health is an interesting conversation. Do you think sex is important for our overall wellness, Julie? Do you think it should be a part of wellness in general? Yes, I think it should be added to our list of health promoting behaviors is just to maybe understand or explore your own sexuality. It doesn't mean that you're your health uh, promoting behavior is just like getting adequate sleep and exercising and, you know, eating a varied diet doesn't mean like go have a bunch of sex, but maybe it's, hey, maybe, you know, have some internal conversations or external conversations about your sexuality with people that you trust. Yeah, that's great. And what even is sexual health, right? Does it have to be sex? I think that's a great question. In a world dominated by promotional content, pushing wellness, happiness, longevity, we focus on this a lot on this podcast, sex Mm -hmm. and sexual health feel like they're frequently ignored. I don't feel like I see a lot of that pushed in the wellness industry that is constantly ending up in my pushed advertisements on social media. Um, Sex can also be a very difficult topic for many people, more than what we've already discussed. Some people have a history of significant negative experiences. Some people even have uh, abusive Um, histories, which makes it very difficult to talk about. But as I already mentioned, and as we've seen with mental health, lowering the stigma associated with sexual dysfunction and increasing the awareness of the benefits of sexual health can lead to improvements in our ability to care for the whole person. So today we are bringing uh, uh, you a great expert. We're bringing you an obstetrician gynecologist and an expert in sexual health to answer the question, can sex make us healthier? Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. 
Welcome back. It's our absolute pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. Lindsay Harper. Dr. Harper completed her obstetrics and gynecology residency at Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas, Texas. She saw patients in a private practice for about seven years and is now a hospitalist. She's an associate professor of OBGYN for the Texas A&M College of Medicine, a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. I love how we use fellow so much. It makes it, hello, fellow. She (laughs) is, uh, we're all fellows. She is also the founder and CEO of Rosie, which is a resource to connect the 84 million women in the U.S. with sexual problems with hope, community, and research-backed solutions to improve their lives. She has been named Forbes Top 50. Women Disrupting Healthcare, People Newspapers 20 Under 40, a top innovator in North Texas for 2020, and a DBJ top woman in tech. Dr. Harper, that is quite a resume. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here with y'all. And I'm not under 40 anymore. Oh. That was a couple of years ago. So just to, for the record. <laughs> you didn't have to admit that, but thank you. Sure. Thanks. No, I just always feel bad. I'm like, I'm not under 40, guys. I swear. Oh, that's funny. I was okay. just thinking the same thing of like, I've got several months before I can make that list myself. There you go. I don't think it's going to happen, Dr. Harper. (laughs) I also think it's always funny with these lists, the top 53 women, like, why did they pick 53? Like, they just couldn't narrow it down. Luckily, I was, you know, I squeaked in between 50 and 53. I don't know. They didn't rank us, but I was, I'm glad they, they included 53. Yeah. That's really great. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on to talk to our listeners today. This is going to be an awesome conversation as we previewed in our introduction. Let's just start briefly with your journey into sexual health. You know, we we talk with a lot of doctors. We all go see a lot of doctors. I don't think there's a ton of people who say that they're a fellow in sexual health. So maybe what drove you to make this your area of focus? Yeah. So when I was in private practice as an OBGYN, you know, I felt confident and and maybe even proficient at uh, many of the things I was trained to do, which included, you know, take care of pregnancy, work up infertility, deal with STIs, contraception, a little bit of menopause. Um, But something that kept coming up with my patients, literally visit after visit, and I wasn't even really asking them or doing a good job of taking a history, were sexual health complaints, particularly the the one that always sticks with me is Dr. Harper. I love my partner, but I don't care if we ever have sex again. Mm. And that one was over and over and over and over. And these women are in distress, truly, like look coming to me for help and I had nothing. And so I started asking around. Um, I don't know if y'all are part of these doctor Facebook groups, but I was like, hey, what is everyone else doing for women with low libido? And everyone was so frustrated by the topic, which was another like interesting moment because they were hearing this complaint all the time, just like me, but they also had not had any training. And so you come to this place where you're like, man, I really want to help my patients, but I don't have the training. I don't have any more perceived time. And so what we're doing as a medical community is kind of leaving our, our female, let's, let's make that important distinction, patients out to dry when it comes to their sexual health. And so I started reflecting back and I was like, man, I spent two weeks in the erectile dysfunction clinic at the VA as a medical student, not even as a, you know, as a resident, but Mm -hmm. as a medical student. So in my primary training, so I knew a lot more about men's sexual health than I had ever learned about women's sexual health. Mm -hmm. My my studies for women's sexual health were really limited to um, STIs and then a small amount of treatment or of, you know, understanding of pain. 
But when it came to even a framework of, of desire, orgasm, arousal, I had, had, I had nothing there. And so anyway, I got super mad is basically what happened. <laughs> and I was like, this is, you know, I, I don't know if this is it. I, anyway, I got very mad. You can say bullshit. And Were you going to say this and, is bullshit? Okay, yes, okay I was great. Say yeah. bullshit, but I didn't know. I was like, okay, never mind. Feel I don't free. Know um, okay, so I was r- very angry. And I also learned more facts. Like there are 26 FDA-approved medications for men's sexual dysfunction. There's only two for women. The two for women are not covered by insurance. We, when it comes to women's sexual health, feel like, you know, it's Pandora's box. This is a, a phrase that's used often whenever I'm talking to other doctors about women's sexual health. And we couldn't possibly, you know, be in charge of untangling it all. But that's that's a, you know, a myth I love to debunk because we now handle depression, right? As, as physicians, we understand that we, there is a medical component to men's sexual dysfunction. There is also a medical component to women's sexual dysfunction. And until we start to understand that, you know, we're really continuing to fail our patients anyway. So decided to lean into that, to try to help each of these women who was, who were struggling and coming into me feeling like they were the only one suffering. That was the biggest sort of promoter of this energy was that these women didn't know because we don't talk about these things that 43% of women have a sexual health concern and they were feeling like something was especially broken. Something was especially wrong with maybe them or their relationship. And so the biggest need for me was to just really, you know, blow that idea up and help women know, Hey, these are really common concerns just because we as a medical community or we as a society don't talk about them doesn't mean that you don't deserve more help than you're getting. So really that was my, my origin story story and the beginning of Rosie. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think that I can still yeah. get myself really mad about it if I, if I oh, for sure. daily, a daily uh, struggle. Well, I think that that validation and reassurance aspect of it is so invaluable. You know, it was just funny. I was just reading um, a post from Dave Stukas, who's one of our pediatricians who we adore. And right now he's at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Meeting. And the whole second day of the meeting is about reassurance, where it's like, okay, you're not the only one who's going through this. So you're not some weirdo freak who it like is going to be some strange case because, you know, your your constellation of symptoms is has a name and it is a thing and we have information about it and we have ways to treat it and you don't have to feel like you're all by yourself. So the validation part of it, I think, is so extremely important. And then the reassurance of like, we can take this on together and and come up with some strategies for this. We don't have to just be like, "Mm, I don't know, you're just not trying hard enough, you know? So that's really, really lovely, Dr. Harper. I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. Well, thank you. And I, I think that honestly, that validation piece is what allows us to stay in partnership with our patients. Yeah. Because without that, they're not going to come back for help. We're not going to have the opportunity to know what's really going on. Um, and so we have to start there if we're going to you know, try to make a, a therapeutic difference in their lives. So certainly you've highlighted another area in which doctors just were not given proper training to help fully, you know, see their whole patient. And again, we get trained on a lot of things. We get trained on diseases. We get trained on making proper diagnoses and treating those diseases. Um, But I think when it comes to the wellness aspect of things, so nutrition and exercise, and now in this case, sexual health, we are just not given that education. And for a long time, the attitude was just rely on other people to have that knowledge. And I think more and more, we're starting to see that relying on other people is leading to misinformation. We can actually maybe make a difference and treat the whole patient more than just saying, come to us when you have a really bad problem and then we'll be a part of your life. 
Absolutely. And I think that's such an important part of the future of medicine. And I, I know that we as individuals agree. And I, I know that our patients agree. We have yet for the payers, you know, and the systems to agree, mm-hmm. uh, at least from a reimbursement perspective. Um, but I think that not only does it, you know, remove us from an entire, maybe most important aspect of our patients' lives, but it also encroaches and does harm really on the as- on the parts that we are supposed to be confident in treating, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it um, really erodes the the possible behavior that could be contributing positively to the treatment of disease or the prevention of disease, to your point. So not only are we missing out on this huge aspect of, of people's lives and health, but also it's it's making us fight an uphill battle. Yeah. When they come to us in the office, they've received so much imp- mis and disinformation that really drives this wedge between where our patients are mentally and sort of, you know, from an emotional readiness standpoint and where we are, because we haven't been there during the first, you know, 99 miles. We're there at the last mile. We don't, we haven't built any trust with people and they don't have any reason really, you know, to believe us at that point. So I think to your point, wherever patients are, that's where we have to be, whether it's on a podcast or on social media or, you know, in the, in the general media, because without that, we, they don't come to us until the situation's in really bad shape. And we've lost a lot of opportunity for trust building relationship, you know, solidification and, and therapeutic benefits. You mentioned you walked into a room previously before your sexual health training and were really frustrated and angry because you felt like you were getting these complaints and you couldn't do anything about them. So then you went and armed yourself, right? You went and got more training and decided you were going to take it upon yourself. So now you walk back into the room with a tool belt. Tell us how you now approach that conversation. Like, like what are some of the things that come up in our relationship to sex and how you can help with those things? Uh, I mean, gosh, it's a whole, it's like a whole new world, you know, instead of apps asking questions from a checkbox, which is what you have to do when you're time constraint and you're, you know, screening for 30,000 other things, then it's much, it's much more productive to ask open-ended questions. You know, my favorite question to start a sexual health conversation is, hey, sexual health, to our earlier point, is part of your health. I can be a resource to help you with anything you might be experiencing. Many women have trouble with, you know, desire, arousal, orgasm, lubrication, or pain. Do you have any sexual health concerns that you'd like to talk with me about today? And I think that obviously grants permission. It also sets a framework. Like what is Dr. Harper even talking about? You know, like, does she mean, what does she mean? And so I think when we put a name to it, I think one of the biggest problems that many of us have when it comes to discussing our own sexuality is it's never been modeled for us. We don't have anyone to set an example. Most of the time our parents haven't you know, done this for us because once again, they weren't taught. We certainly aren't taught in school um, or church or anything like that. So we don't have even the language to attach to maybe the complicated emotions that we're feeling or maybe the physical symptoms or you know other, other issues that we're um, experiencing. So when I, as a physician, can put forth the language and do so in a really respectful, fact-based manner, then it it allows and it shows my patient, hopefully, that, you know, that's that's okay for her to do as well. And that, 
we have, you know, created a safe space to talk about these things. And also I have a lot of other visual cues, like mm. a bunch of books, you know, about sexuality, I have mm. a vulva puppet that's laying around. <laughs> like I, and also make sure to teach my patient correct anatomical terms mm. about a, a vulva is a vulva. It's not a vagina. Many of us as physicians use the wrong, even as OBGYNs use the wrong mm -hmm. anatomical terminology for the external female genitalia. Anything you can see on the outside without a speculum, it's called the vulva. And to talk to women about their pleasure, right? Many women come to their come to a sex medicine doctor or maybe their OBGYN doctor thinking they should be having orgasms through penetrative or penis and vagina sex. And it's like, what is wrong with me? You know, my partner says all of his previous partners could do it this way. Like, why can't I? And it's like, well, fact of the matter is 86% of women have orgasms through clitoral stimulation. So maybe every single one of his partners before you were in that 14% or maybe they all thought they were doing it wrong and, you know, decided to, you know, get into it for whatever other reason. So the, this misinformation and these myths that exist are perpetuated by, you know, so much silence is the biggest perpetuator, but then also the media, um, you know, the lack of sexual education. And so we as physicians have a true, just amazing opportunity today to, to use the other language, to teach our patients, to dispel these myths and to give them the power that they need to talk about whatever problems they're experiencing. I think that's so helpful that you give patients like a primer or some context before you ask the question. Personally, as as a oversharing provider, and I think that Jeremy and I work in sports medicine, so you know, it's I feel like it's a helpful tool and it's just like a natural thing that I do is like sharing my experience with like, yeah, I had a shoulder problem too and I did XYZ and it really worked for me. And also I've seen this many, many, many times. And I think some of that is building trust and rapport when you only have a brief amount of time to help somebody understand that you're someone to be trusted and they can make that decision for themselves. But I do feel like I might need some tips as a as someone who's providing sexual health recommendations to not be like, well, let me tell you my personal story. <laughs> Does that ever happen to you in the office, Dr. Harper? Do you ever like, like, hey, let me level with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm the same. I don't I wouldn't say that I overshare on a regular basis, but <laughs> yeah. sometimes you do just feel really bonded to somebody sure. and you can see that they are struggling yeah. and you know that that share is going to help them kind of cross over. And so I think obviously in the correct context, I I mean, I think that's what's beautiful about being a human physician yeah. is that human connection. And so I'll never like block that completely because mm -hmm. that's, I mean, I believe firmly, my husband is a technologist and we have lots of, you know, in-depth conversations about the future of, of medicine. And I just think that that baseline level of humanity is so important. And if we d try to strip that from ourselves, that we're missing out on a real opportunity with our patients. Um, something that I think is sort of a happy medium is for me to share, hey, Whenever I started doing this work, I was 38 years old and I learned so much from reading like three books yeah. because I had never learned anything. And so I think that baseline sort of starting point of like, you may not know what's going on. And just a few years ago, me and OBGYN had no idea either. Like the, we can, we can open sort of the world of possibilities to you. And that really helps to alleviate a lot of the hopelessness that many of these women are feeling because they feel like, oh, I've tried, you know, X, Y, Z thing that they got on the internet that has once again, like no data, no evidence. And that perpetuates 
their idea of brokenness, yeah. right? That nothing's ever going to work. And so to start from an equal place and say, hey, we both have a lot to learn. I promise you, I will reach into the tool belt and help you find, you know, the next step, no matter if these first, you know, three things you tried didn't work. So I think there's, there is a time for personal sharing. There's also a time for everyone where you can start and say, hey, this is not you. This is a problem sort of globally and immediately, you know, with our world. That's I look great. forward to you sharing us those three books later in this episode. The, oh, yeah. uh, um, you mentioned those symptoms at the beginning, like you asked that open-ended question, awesome open-ended question. Do you find that there's multiple times where women say, I didn't realize that that was even a problem? Like, like I just thought that that was normal. Maybe, for example, like I thought it was kind of interesting to see pain, like painful sex was kind of just expected. Is that something that comes up a lot? I mean, all this stuff can, all this stuff has been normalized to an extreme point that you would never believe only if you were <laughs> probably a woman experiencing them, because it's, it's just kind of like the same as stress urinary incontinence. Like we just laugh about that. Like it's no big deal. If men were going around peeing on themselves on a really regular basis, like that, that is not normal. Right. But we, as women, I mean, we literally laugh about it all the time. The same is true for sexual complaints. Like, oh, you know, I've just, I guess I'll have to have a glass of wine or it's just the most ridiculous mm -hmm. like narrative that we've created for ourselves that as we get old, our sexuality, you know, has to disappear or is not an important part of our lives anymore. Or, you know, if you are, if you have had a history of trauma, that sort of that's your burden to carry for the rest of your life, whether it's pain or, you know, a lack of orgasm or something like that. There's so many things that we tell ourselves. And I think when it comes to wit, to um, sex, that it is even heavier because there's no there's no avenue for connection out of it. That's that's very obvious to people. So I think that um, you know there's a lot. The desire is the number one sexual complaint that women have. Thirty eight percent of women report lack of sexual desire that's bothersome to them. Um, so up to seventy percent of women experience pain at some point or, or another. Twenty percent of women live with chronic pain. Twenty five percent of women have trouble with arousal. Twenty percent of women have trouble with orgasm. Um, so, I mean, these are very common issues. Um, and like I said earlier, 43% of women describe something and that's nearly half of women. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're common, but that doesn't mean they're normal and they're common because we don't do a good job of addressing them, yeah. you know, uh, as a, as a community. Where are those stats coming from just to help us kind of orient yeah. those surveys that are done or. Those, that's all of those, except for the pain number, is from a study called the Preside Study, P-R-E-S-I-D-E. And pain is much harder to get a handle on because there's not a good, um, like, there's not an accepted criteria to define pain. So when you look pain up, you'll find numbers from 9% to like 89%. Oh, man. Um, and so that's, but we do, ACOG reports that 70% of women have pain at some point or another. That includes postpartum. So that's, that's why that number gets really high. But then 20% is where the chronic pain, so women who suffer from sexual pain on a really regular basis, um, that's where that number lies. Cool. Thank you for bringing up desire, because I think libido and desire, is, you mentioned, is the most common um, thing that's brought up. And the New York Times actually just had an article about when one partner wants sex more than the other was the title of the article, which was a really yeah. cool article. I think that the fact that it's being even talked about is great. But maybe teach us a little bit about desire, libido, and the differences in people. Yeah. I mean, this is what I talk about probably most of the time, um, just because it's it's such an interesting topic. And I think there's 
so much from a therapeutic lens that can be learned with just a little bit of information. Um, so some people, so what you were talking about is a desire mismatch. And in most relationships, there is quote unquote, a desire mismatch. Now, whether, and I'm using air quotes for anyone who's listening, whether or not that mismatch is like, you know, something that causes an occasional, you know, spat versus causes a real rift in a relationship kind of de depends on the, the um, level of discrepancy, right? So if one person would prefer to have sex three times a week and the other person would prefer to have sex one time a week, usually that can be kind of negotiated, right? But if somebody's at a place where they're like seven times a week and the other person's like two times a year, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. But a desire mismatch is actually really, really common. Just like we come into relationships with different ideas about money to our earlier topic, right? Where we've, we've created different you know, relationships with these ideas about parenting. Like this is just another one of those that has to be negotiated. And in order to do so, we have to be able to facilitate open conversation using, you know, respectful and, and um, sort of open um, dialogue. So that's a skill to be learned. That can be learned by, by almost anyone. Um, but when it comes to libido, there are two different types of desire. One is spontaneous desire, which is usually kind of hormone driven. And we notice that earlier, usually in life for women, where they're, you know, you're just kind of going along with your day and you're like, oh, like, I feel like I want to have sex today. And that tends to change for women over time while it tends to persist for men. But these are mm -hmm. these are very broad generalizations. So there are some men who never experience spontaneous desire and there are some women who always experience spontaneous yeah. desire. But if we're speaking in generalizations, that persists for men. While for women, they might switch to something called responsive desire. And that can happen sort of with aging. So like early as 30s, more responsibility. Stress is the number one libido killer. Mm. And we all know we have a lot of stress. And that's a really hard thing to sort of, you know, try to decrease in life. But it definitely can be done. Um, and so they kind of, uh, many women kick into something called responsive desire, which is they first are um, exposed to a sexual idea or cue. And then they feel arousal, which is defined as a physical reaction, much like we think of erection in men. That's an arousal response. So it's something physical is happening that we can measure. So blood rushes to the genitals. You can think about it just like you do in a penis that you would in a clitoris. The, the clitoris becomes engorged. It actually has an erection. And we all learned in medical school that, you know, the penile tissue is homologous to the clitoral tissue. Mm -hmm. So they're both getting erections. You can feel a pulsatile sensation in the pelvis. The nipples become erect, breathing pattern changes. So these are physical signs of arousal. So in the responsive desire pathway, the person is um, exposed to a sexual stimuli. The best example of this is like erotica mm -hmm. or some other things that we might use are like the scent of your partner or, you know, some other thing that you consider to be sexy. Mm -hmm. And then that induces arousal in the body, which then sends the message to the brain. Oh, now I think I might want to have sex. So it's kind of like the analogy that we've heard in the past of going to the gym. Like you may not feel like going to the gym, but once you get there, you're like, mom, this was a good idea. Yeah. It's kind of like that where you are an active and willing participant, but your motivation might be different. And the responsive desire pathway, your motivation might be, well, I know I'm going to feel good once I get started, or I want to be close to my partner, or I, and I know an orgasm will help me get rid of this headache or X, Y, Z insert reason here. Right. With the other model, spontaneous desire, your, um, 
you know, reason for getting going is because you have a just innate desire to have sex. And so the point of that very long story is that spontaneous desire and responsive desire are both very normal. There's nothing pathologic about responsive desire. And once people, generally speaking, women are aware of that, they can utilize that to sort of meet their sexual health goals, whatever they might, that might be, or work towards their desire discrepancy mismatch, um, you know, uh, negotiation, if you will, in order to, you know, really unlock things. They, you don't need a prescription. It's not a diagnosis, right? There's nothing, nothing has gone wrong here. It's just that we don't talk about sex in these ways and understand fundamentally that you could have spontaneous desire or responsive desire, and that information is worth its weight in gold when it comes to, to one's sexual health and self-perception of their sexual health. No, that's so, it's such a helpful framework to put it in because, it, it, again, it's, so, it's ridiculous that I feel like I feel like a well-informed physician woman who has a general pretty good handle on sexual health and like, no idea. That is brand yeah. new news to me. I feel Same. very educated, but also a little bit humbled to be like, dang, girl, I don't know nothing. You know, but like, I know. Tell me about it. Uh, I know I went to like get my sexual medicine training as an OBGYN uh-huh. and I was like, what? Like I had a baby in residency. I'm like, did I like miss a whole entire rotation? You know, like <laughs> what is even happening and why is this not part of our residency? Yeah. You know, it is. More and more sexual medicine is getting more attention. There are more people having this fellowship and then going back to their programs and training. But it is you it's at a special place that you might find it. It's not included everywhere by any means. And there is so much to it. And it's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that none of us know this. You know, it's just it's mind blowing. Yeah. I, I like the the framework of the sort of the mismatch. Because I feel like you're right. You can you you can utilize that for sort of any part of a partnership. You said financial. I mean, like, for example, like sometimes I get home from work and I'm either I'm like really excited about something that happened or like really bummed out or whatever. And if I get home and my partner, Adam, is like doing like he's unwinding from work and he's like hanging out, answering emails or something on the phone. And I'm like, hey, do you want to hear my story? about? And then it's just like, whoa, whoa. You know, like when when those things happen and you get that discord and then one one partner feels dismissed by the other, regardless if it's something sexual or if it's something about a parenting decision-making process or anything, then you feel rejected. You know, do, do, sure. do you feel like that's something that some of your patients have come up of like, well, then when there's this mismatch, I either feel like I'm the rejector or I am rejected. And I just feel like that would build resentment in a relationship. And we know from the Gottmans that resentment is the relationship killer. Absolutely. And I mean, probably, you know, we know sex and money are the two biggest stressors in relationships. And I think sex is and money too, though, but sex is really hard because there's so much emotion on on it. And and we all internalize like so whenever many of the women that I talk to have low desire, it really doesn't have very much to do with their partners most of the time. It's just like, I'm tired. Like, I just really don't care about this. This does not have anything. Like, I love you. I don't, this means nothing about us. But something that can be helpful is that, and not to like turn the tables, but to just understand the human experience of like, what if your partner never wanted to have sex with you? Many low desire partners are in the, in the mindset of like, just, you know, kind of like leave me alone Mm -hmm. type thing. And they, and what happens is over time, 
they think, oh, if my partner wants to kiss me, that's because they want sex. Mm. And so they stop kissing. And then if their partner wants to like have sort of any touch, like, oh, I'm going to rub her back or whatever, they're that they start to reject that because they're worried that this is all kind of down the line, their partner's trying to have sex. And so then there comes like this complete disconnect of intimacy of any kind, whether it's supposed to lead to sex or not, because of the fear that there's some sort of like ulterior motive down the line. And that can lead. And I've, I mean, I've talked to patients who have been struggling with these things for decades and have never had a conversation about it with their partner with anyone else and all of a sudden i'll be talking about this publicly on a stage there'll be a line of 20 people and 10 of them are in tears because literally this is like you know no one's ever mentioned this one time and they just thought it was just them and their failed broken relationship but they're not leaving anytime soon and neither is their partner right so this is not just i mean in and of itself, it should and it is important, but this is an individual issue. This is a partnership issue. This is a family issue. Mm-hmm. This is a society issue. Like we've got to figure this out because it's leading to so much unnecessary pain mm-hmm. for so many people because we are not able to get the help that we need. It seems like awareness is probably a huge part of this. And you've already done an awesome job through this episode of labeling some things that, as Julie mentioned, I was unable to label even up until uh, a few minutes ago. Um, But the next level of that, maybe once I've become aware of that, maybe somebody listening is like, oh, I am that responsive person. That's interesting. Maybe the next step is then having a conversation about it. So maybe how do you talk to your patients about talking to their partner about this or having a conversation about sex if they're not somebody who usually does that? Yeah. I mean, I, I love this because I always just tell them to blame it on their, you know, crazy doctor (laughs) who's like, Hey, I went to see this doctor today. She was so crazy, but let me tell you what she said, you know? And it's like, okay. Or I heard this podcast or I read this article or whatever. And so you can bring it up as like, you know, just kind of throwing it out on the table to see how it lands and blaming it on all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or another, another tactic, which I also think is beautiful. And I think is generally received very well is, hey, like, I love being your partner. I want to grow and learn with you in all areas, especially our sex life. I feel like I have a lot to learn. Would do you are you interested in like learning things with me? And then, you know, if the pay if the person's open to that, that's great. It's such a beautiful beginning. And there's a lot of different steps after that. But that's, I think, the very first one. If there's some immediate you know, emotional negative reaction, you can kind of see if that, if that dissipates and maybe you can retry. If not, then that's when a sex therapist can be super duper helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, we, sometimes we need some extra help. There's no shame in that. And this just like anything, whenever you're working through something hard and big and, you know, seemingly, you know, too difficult for the two of you or how to tackle together, then there's never any reason not to involve a sex therapist. You can find a sex therapist online at asect.org. They're all over the country. Would you specifically like a sex therapist when you, when it's, you know, people in a partnership that are trying to improve or mitigate problems or have a facilitate a better discussion. How, how often do you feel like, like a a typical couples therapist has training in this? Or would you specifically say like you should really go to a a certified sex therapist? 
So there, I, it's just so funny. We work with a sex therapist, obviously at Rosie, we, it's multidisciplinary, which is something I'm super passionate about. So we have medical, you know, professionals, we have sex therapists, we have pelvic floor PTs mm-hmm. on the oncology side. Cause oncology is a huge audience for us of breast cancer and gynecologic cancer patients that never once have a conversation about sexual health with any of their providers yeah. in stark contrast to men being treated for any type of prostate or pelvic floor cancer. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so you know, I think that when it comes to relationship therapists, what I've heard, and this is actually akin to gynecologists as well, is that they're using Rosie, the platform to get their first learning about sexual health and sex therapy, (laughs) which is great on one hand, but which is also very sad on the other hand, that there's not any formal training. So it is, it is almost every relationship therapist I've talked to, they recognize that sex is a big issue, but they've had no formal training. Mm -hmm. Sex therapists are special because they started out usually as psychologists or social workers, just like all the other therapists, but they've had particular training, just like I have had to talk to patients, particularly about sexual health problems. And they understand that sexual health touches all parts of, you know, all of our lives, but also that our lives themselves touch our sexual health, whether that's our culture, our religion, the societal messages that we're given, whatever's going on with our partner and the messages that we're receiving from them, our past relationships, any trauma. Mm -hmm. So they're really, you know, they're helpful at, um, at dealing with those specific things. You can always give it a go. Like if you're already in relationship therapy, you can just ask your person like, Hey, how comfortable are you with dealing with sexual issues? They may obviously have different levels of comfort Mm -hmm. and you could, you know, you can kind of just, um, suss that out with them at first. But if you're not getting the help you need, I think it's really important for people to know that they're a sex therapist. And people also think that sex therapists are going to like watch them have sex or like they're going to do some touching in the office or something. None of that's true. Mm -hmm. Just like regular therapy, but they've had extra training. So no need to be worried or scared. Well, even in just like 35 minutes of this conversation, I feel like we've brought down so many barriers that you could just tell that having a conversation with a sex therapist would give you language and the ability to have a conversation that you maybe couldn't have before. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love mental health, generally speaking, sex therapists. I learn so much every single time I talk to one of them. Um, and yeah, it's a wealth of knowledge and, and such great perspective just on, on, you know, how, how to approach sexuality without shame and really, you know, transfer that to everyone that you're speaking with as well. All right. So we titled the episode, you know, does sex make us healthier? So let's bring it back to that real quick. Where does sexual health fit into the wellness journey? Can we be healthy without sex? Do we need sex to be healthy? And if we do, can, does it make us healthier to have sex or good sexual health? Yeah, I think for me, there's really two parts of this question. The first is, Uh, well, maybe there's three parts. The first is, is their absence of disease, right? So like, and this is how the WHO defines sexual health, absence of disease, but also ownership and enjoyment of sexuality. So first we have to say like, am, is there a problem with painful sex with, you know, just regular sexual function? Like we were talking about desire, orgasm, lubrication, arousal. Um, we want, we want people of all genders to experience sort of problem-free sex, right? And sexual expression. And then there's the other piece, which is maybe what we would talk about or categorize more as the wellness component, which is, have you had the education that you need? Do you have the framework, the context, the language, the permission to fully understand your own personal sexuality preferences um, and expression? And then do you feel empowered 
to be, to, to show and be who you are in the world in which you live. Right. And for me, that's as important as absence of disease, because there are many people who function, you know, fine, but are, but feel very boxed in or um, restricted or shameful about any, and that could be someone who is, you know, in the, in the traditional sense, extremely, you know, like a, a cisgendered person who's heterosexual can still feel, and many do, so much shame around their sexuality, right? Not to mention if you have different expressions of sexuality. So there's so much opportunity for us to really um, acknowledge sexual health and sexuality as when we look at the whole entire person, right? Not just our fitness, not just our mental health. Are we, do we feel safe, comfortable, and whole as a person in that sexual component? That means different things for different people, right? Everybody always wants to ask me, how many times should we be having sex a month or whatever? I'm like, no, that's not a thing. Like, there's no number. That's not a thing. The, The question is like, how do you feel sexually fulfilled? What does that mean in your partnership? And those two things, by the way, are separate and that's okay. Um, and so sometimes there's tactics to address this desire mismatch, or if there are different preferences or things like that. Um, and to understand that you are a sexual being individually, and then you get to express that in partnership with others. And so I think that the recognition of that, you know, is really life changing and can be super therapeutic and necessary for the whole definition of sexual health. There's another aspect, which you might be talking about as well, which is like, when I have sex, does it contribute positively to my health? And that answer is also yes. It has been shown to decrease anxiety. Um, obviously, as I'm, I kind of threw in there earlier, it can be a treatment for headache for many women. That's been shown in a clinical study. Although, you know, we talk about the chicken and the egg, like the headache and the sex and the sex and the headache right. and which came first. Um, but yes, there are many positive health benefits to having sex. Now, in terms of like this idea of like cleaning out the pipes, right? We hear that one sometimes, like how often should I have an orgasm? That one's less well understood and demonstrated, except for maybe in the infertility world. Um, But how it contributes back to our individual health is still kind of up in the air. There's so much research to be done. That's one thing I love about the company that I run is that we have the opportunity to partner both on our own internal research, but on, you know, wider spread academic research, publish, 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 because we have a gigantic data set. And we are so eager to, you know, contribute back to, you know, what's known and what's not known about women's sexual health, because there's so much discovery um, to be had. But we, for now, have the big job of at least disseminating what is known. I feel like the irony of that, uh, what you said before, was that for years in in media, it was a woman having a headache that prevented her from having sex. Yeah. So you've just exactly. said now that it, it actually can cure the headache. And maybe we it shouldn't be uh, gender uh, stereotyping people. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's one thing that happens frequently. And that can make people who are experiencing a different set of symptoms or have a different experience feel very othered. So you're exactly right. There are women who have high desire. There are men who have low desire. You know, people identify um, across the across the spectrum when it comes to sexual experiences. So we're definitely speaking in generalizations for sure. You've piqued my interest. I want to improve my sexual health. So what is, what do you, where, where should I start? Like, what, what do you tell people you've, you've roped them in? They've had their first appointment or you've had a conversation with them. Yeah. You feel like, okay, I'm on board. Now, like, where do you tell them to start? Where does the journey begin? 
Absolutely. So I'll, I'll reference back some, to some of my favorite books that I mentioned earlier. So when my journey began, I started with three books. Two are by Dr. Lori Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z. And one of them is called A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. And the other is called Becoming Cliterate. They're both like so good. And I think that everyone should read both of those. And then the third book is called, um, oh my goodness, it's just, it's by Emily Nagoski, Come As You Are. And it's really good. And I'm like, you know, super science nerd. It talks about rat sex and it's just fascinating, like the science of sex. And um, so that is, that was a great read for me, but these are meant for lay people, right? But we as physicians learn so much, <laughs> which is the sad state of affairs. So I would start there. That was the foundation for my lay person understanding. Then I went into the, the much more in-depth medical understanding and, you know, uh, created Rosie, which is also meant to, meant to address the same audience. And we have, as I mentioned earlier, multidisciplinary support. Um, we have a library of erotica to really kick off that responsive desire pathway for women. Um, we have a peer community. We have coaching available on the platform. And we've shown, we've shared our data at ACOG, which is the OBGYN society, that um, women who use Rosie experience statistically significant improvements in all aspects of sexual health. And the more they use Rosie, the more they see. Tell us about Rosie. I mean, you've mentioned oh, it a few times, but maybe introduce yeah. it yourself in your own words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rosie is an app that anybody can download on their phone. There, You can download it for free. We really want to establish trust with anyone who downloads the platform and, and tell them that they're not alone, at least have that opportunity. Um, we create a personalized program that really takes into account the whole person's experience that we've referenced lots of times, including the medical component, relational, mental health, even to religion and cultural experiences. So we have specific programs for really any, you know, if you will, archetype of person that kind of comes to the, to the platform. So a person who's postpartum and who was raised as a conservative Christian and is having, you know, sexual pain is going to get at a completely different experience than someone who's menopausal and is Muslim and is depressed. Mm -hmm. And we will sort of overlay all the different components in her program. Um, she have access to erotica, as I mentioned, coaching both in the group and individual format, and then an anonymous community where women can connect, oftentimes for the first time, oftentimes for the first time about these about these things. We've helped more than two hundred thousand women. We're now recommended by eleven percent of OBGYNs in the country. Um, so, you know, just uh, trying to do trying to spread the word and do the good work and help help people to know that they're not alone and there are evidence based solutions for whatever they're struggling with. Dr. Harper, this is so great. Like, I'm on the Rosie website right now. I'm not on the app yet. Give me time. <laughs> but yet. even just like Perfect. if you go down like the articles that you've written, that just like the titles, first of all, they sound like titles. One, they're very interesting, and I'll, I'll name a few of them that are like, ooh. Um, they also sound like things that like Jeremy, you and I would bring up as like a title of an episode, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, this is a common question that there's lots of misinformation about, and so maybe it's hard to have a conversation about it. And I just love... Dr. Harper, that you're putting this out there. Like, so why do UTIs happen after sex and what to do about it? The truth about antidepressants and sexual side effects in women. So interested. Um, just like, I mean, yeah, men's sexual dysfunction. Why does my vulva itch? Like, it just so many cool things that like already I'm like, ooh, I'm going to I'm gonna bookmark that and read that later. But again, not only as someone who just is curious about their own sexual health, but also wanting to be more empowered to disseminate that information to patients and or just like friends and family. I don't know. Family, totally. sure. <laughs> Absolutely family. You would be shocked. Like I, you know, as in my role, I hear all kinds of stories from 
friends and family and everything. But I, at the end of the day, I love that. I love that people feel, you know, the agency to have a sexual health conversation. That's not a joke. You know what I mean? And so I think that the more we can accept that as, as, you know, individuals and as, uh, I would say like supporters of other people, the better we all are going to be. So yes, families include it, included in your list for sure. And the other thing I love about this work is that I get to connect with people who are so passionate about this and that's who writes all these things. Yes, I write some of them, but mainly they're written by other people who we have vetted and are experts in this field or whatever field we're asking them to write about and just connecting and, and sharing that information through our platform for me is like, it's such a fun part of my job. I love it. I feel like this would dovetail really nicely into some other people that we've had on the podcast that mainly like Mike, like our friend, Laura Danger, who's a big advocate for the fair play method, Eve Rodsky's book about like, again, like these are, these are long-term partnership conversations. I mean, they're also conversations to have with yourself about like, what are my own sexual needs? You know, how do I meet them? who can I talk to about it? But then also sort of making the implicit explicit, particularly explicit when it comes to sexual health. <laughs> um, but yeah, to like to, to facilitate these conversations with our partners, because this is we're in it for the long haul. And if we can match each other's energy in all the different ways, I just feel like that would really dovetail. So I'm just like calling in Laura and Eve and see if they... <laughs> I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you. I love that. And I, you know, it's an exercise that I did a few years ago, which is like, okay, you're 80 years old. You look back on your life. Like, what do you want? What are the, what are the call outs? And one of those for me, and I think for most people is investment in that long-term relationship. And this is a, and, and also in yourself, like you want to have realized the, you know, fullest version of yourself while with the short amount of time that we're here. So let's, let's do it. And this is part of that work. And so in that way, it's so, it's so meaningful and so beautiful and, and just alleviating the pain, but then offering that opportunity for, you know, true self-realization, I think is such a, such a cool opportunity. Agreed. Last week, the New York Times put out an article that was uh, the eight myths that sexual experts wish would go away. So this is perfect timing. So I want to know what Dr. Lindsay Harper's myth that she wishes would go away would be. Okay, my first one is one I've already mentioned, which is about clitoral stimulation required for orgasm. I think that's the most harmful one that persists um, everywhere, and people don't know that, and it really causes a lot of stress for women. The second is this idea that sex always has to be spontaneous. Most of the time, when you're outside of a brand new relationship, sex is not spontaneous. Even when you're in a new relationship, you've gotten ready for the date, you've looked forward to the you know evening, you, you've you're probably thinking that sex is or isn't going to happen. Like you're planning for it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to remember that as we continue to move through our sexual relationships. It's like there's nothing wrong with planning sex. In fact, it's quite empowering and can take away a lot of anxiety on both partners' parts um, because you're not, you know, wondering, oh, is this the night? And especially for the low desire partner, it can empower them to sort of get ready, whether it's reading erotica or taking time for themselves, getting themselves into the right headspace through meditation. Um, th- that offers the, a transfer, if you will, of power um, planning for sex. So I think that that's a super helpful one. Another one is, okay, I've got two more. That if, well, it's kind of the same thing. If you use a toy or a lube, that that means there's something wrong in the bedroom. 
that those are actually pleasure pluses and can just kind of add to fun and novelty and conversation and exploration. Um, more than 50% of women use vibrators. There's nothing wrong with that. All people in a, in a large study reported that lube added more pleasure to their sexual experience. So you don't have to wait until you're experiencing sexual pain to try lube. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different kinds. People prefer different types for different sexual activities. Um, so I think that, you know, just kind of erasing some of that, like griminess off the top of some of those topics and an opportunity for exploration and conversation and introducing novelty into a longstanding relationship can be really helpful. I feel like it's even interesting. Like I was at Target the other day and there's a little section, like end section yeah. of like, here's some sexual health stuff. And I was like, oh, it's not just tampons and douche. Right. <laughs> Totally. That's happened just in the last few years, you know, and all of the sexual health companies are kind of coming up together. And so it's so great to see yeah. uh, opportunities happening like that in, in major retailers, for sure. It's very exciting. Certainly. This was great. Uh, Julie, anything else you want to ask Dr. Harper? Oh, I mean, I want to ask Dr. Harper one million things, <laughs> but maybe off off uh, off the record. No, this was really... <laughs> No, this is extremely empowering. I think this is so great for, for people of all genders and all sexual orientations to really, I don't know, own their own little piece of another health-promoting behavior that's so important and to remove the, yeah, the griminess, the stigma, the, like, dirtiness of of sex and sexual health when it's not. It's part of who we all are to some degree or another. And you're absolutely right, just because it's, teehee embarrassing to talk about it is for like 30 seconds and then you get into it and you're like right this is great like I mean just like with your with your close people in your life too like that yeah. you that you know and you trust and 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 gosh I mean, maybe sometimes it is I don't know I guess my point is with that is how wonderful it is to have um this be a an area of medicine that seems to be flourishing and it's people like you, Dr. Harper, that are leading the charge to say, no, let's just let's keep pushing. Let's keep doing this and make it more accessible to people because it is difficult. It's a difficult concept and a difficult conversation to have for a million different reasons. So anything that improves access is is so great and so sustainable, I think. And I'm so happy. Well, thank you. And my hope is that while it's difficult for us that, you know, the trainees that are coming up now and the patients that they are going to be working with, that it'll be, you know, at least 30%, maybe 50% less difficult, right? That we'll continue to make this a less and less difficult conversation for our children, for, you know, everybody that comes after that this is something we can truly make a difference for. Yeah, I hope that when we're standing in circles, and I feel like this is, if you use the analog of mental health, we now can talk about, yeah, I'm taking yeah. a medication for my anxiety, or I saw somebody, I'm in regular therapy, and now you can like have that conversation and nobody's like, <gasps> or, you know, right. like, you know, like your, your, your parents would be like, don't tell people that or whatever. <laughs> like, I would hope that moving forward, we can start to have that same thing happen with sexual health that in the in, in, in a in a circle of friends who would sit around and have a conversation that it would not become taboo to talk about sex and some form or fashion. Um, and so I think that would allow the curtain to be pulled back in terms of allowing for, I didn't realize that was not normal, or I didn't right. realize that there were resources for that, or, oh my gosh, other people are having issues that I'm having, or, you know, that kind of thing. So I, that would be my goal uh, yeah. moving forward. I love that. And I think there's, you know, we've seen such progress in mental health just in the past, you know, five years. And I do feel that sexual health is 
sort of on the heels of mental health, but with the same momentum. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that that, that can happen. Uh, tell people where we can find more about you, find more about Rosie. Yeah. I mean, no doctors are on LinkedIn, but that's where startup people are. So I'm on LinkedIn, <laughs> Lindsay Harper, MD. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but you'll find more on meet Rosie. It's meet M E E T underscore Rosie R O S Y. Um, that's our Instagram, which is sort of, so meet Rosie on Instagram, Lindsay Harper on LinkedIn. And then our website is meetrosie.com. And we would love for you to just visit the app store, download Rosie R O S Y and check it out. Let me know what you think. We're always learning, open to feedback. This is a mutual conversation with everybody on our platform. Um, so we love, we love to hear from everybody. And you mentioned it's a free app, but is there a subscription model included within the app? There. Yes, there are three tiers um, ranging between $10 and $150 per month, and that just depends on level of support. Yeah. So the whole digital personalized plan is $10 a month. That includes erotica. Um, there's a $50 plan, which is group coaching and workshops, and then the $150 includes um, personal work or personal coaching, two sessions each month. Oh, wow. Awesome. All right. Well, to wrap awesome. this up, um, you know, with sexual health and promoting sexual health, if we're not going to do it, someone else with ulterior motives probably will. So you know what? Listen to your doctor friends. Hi friends, your doctor friends value your sexual health. And with the holidays coming up, perhaps you should give yourself or someone important in your life the gift of sexual wellness solutions that you deserve. Our friend and guest, Dr. Lindsay Harper, founded Rosie, a first-of-its-kind app and media platform that offers personalized and holistic solutions for sexual wellness. We want to share a unique code for our listeners to access a free month of Rosie's Silver Membership, which includes all of Rosie's educational content, full access to the Erotica Library, and a personalized daily wellness plan. So click the link in our show notes, or you can go to meetrosie.com, that's M-E-E-T-R-O-S-Y.com, and use promo code DOCTORFRIENDS, to claim your free month. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D-S, Dr. Friends, to claim your free month. So prioritize your sexual health today and try Rosie on us for a month. And happy holidays. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. <laughs>